in the 19th century, Dwight L. Moody used to preach to 10 to 20,000 in evangelistic rallies during the Civil War time around our country and then internationally. He would travel by ship and preach, and it's estimated that he gave the gospel by pen or voice to 100 million people in his lifetime. His critics who would criticize how he would let himself go, uh, his critics couldn't say too much negative about him because of the scale of his influence and the effect on the culture that he had. One critic was only able to say there was a revivalist moody, bearded and reckless, and with 280 pounds of Adam's flesh, every ounce belonged to God. So Moody's gospel was powerful. But At the end of his ministry, he made a confession that his son actually picked up on of an area that he believed he lacked. And that area is what we're going to be talking about from Galatians chapter 4. His son recounts uh, that a British evangelist came to Moody Church and his name, Henry Morehouse, preached a seven-sermon Old Town revival series from one verse, John 3.16. Now, they do that in the South, and however long you think I preach or however slow you think I preach through a text, I haven't done that yet. And uh, anyway, six nights this man preached on the single verse, John 3.16, and he came to his seventh night and confessed, quote, Beloved friends, I've been hunting all day for a new text, but I cannot find anything good as the old one, the third chapter of John and the 16th verse. So he came to the end of his sermon. He came to the end of the series and he said this, my friends for a whole week, I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I cannot do it with this poor stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb into heaven and ask Gabriel who stands in the presence of the almighty to tell me how much the love the father has for the world, all he could say would be, quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, this series apparently, according to his son, impacted Moody greatly where he was in tears through most of it. Moody confessed, I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out. Moody goes on and says he took up love as a doctrine that he studied from Genesis to Revelation for many weeks until at last he couldn't find, um, but just that he loved people more and more. He said, I was feeding on love so long that I was anxious to do everybody good that I came in contact with. I got so full of it, my, it ran out my fingers. You get so full of love that all you... Got to do is open your lips and a flood of the love of God flows out in the meeting. Well, we need that. We need to be reintroduced and refreshed in the love of God. Our hearts not just externally get cold, but they, uh, they, they need to thaw out internally, right? We need to be thawed by God's love, and love is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Love saved you and saved me. It changed everything in our lives, and love should be flowing out in how we engage others, and this is very convicting to me. It's convicting, I think, for anyone who's listening because we need to be loving leaders. Love should be what people sense when they're around us, that we love them, and there's two 
polar extremes in terms of leadership that I talked about the last time we were in Galatians. And I think the text and Paul brings out, that's loving leadership where we lead by love or leading by hate. And that might seem like I'm unfairly polarizing two extremes of leadership. However, Paul does this. He's contrasting his leadership with those who are manipulative with mixed, selfish, self-aggrandizing motivations. His is a motivation of love. Theirs is a motivation of selfish hate towards these people, whether they knew it or not. And if we're really willing to examine ourselves, and I would encourage all of you to do so, you would see yourself somewhere on the spectrum of being a loving leader and how you approach your children and co-workers, subordinates, people in your life, whether you're loving or whether you're tending more towards selfishness or a form of hatred towards people. In verses 12 through 15 of Galatians chapter 4, I would invite you to look there. I'm going to read there. Paul is appealing to the church's memory banks of when Paul was with them. He wants them to do an examination of the times that they had with Paul, to think about that time that he was there face-to-face with them, and to compare that experience with the experience that they are now having with the leaders who are in charge of the churches now. So he's making an analysis and he's putting himself out there saying, compare me with the Judaizers. Listen as I read verses 12 to 15. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, it's key to pick up on the fact that Paul is speaking of leadership in terms of a reciprocal relationship. He's saying, I led you... So become as I am. There's this cyclical dynamic of follow me as I follow Christ going on. And he's saying, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. I became like you. I adjusted to you. I engaged you in your world. So now remember that and become like me. Follow Christ. Don't follow these people. Paul's proving the success of his approach, in fact, by asking them to recount not how he treated them in the reciprocal dynamic, but check it, it's how they were treating him. He's proving his loving example by the fact that they mirror reflected it back to him. He's saying, remember how you treated me. I came with a bodily ailment, which was probably pretty reprehensible. It was probably pretty disgusting. Maybe an eye disease, I'm not sure. But he came as a servant of Christ. He came as a messenger of Christ and came in the name of Christ and his love. And they didn't reject him. They didn't, verse 14, scorn or despise him. They received him as an angel of God. They loved him as if... Christ was coming into their presence himself. He came as Christ and they loved him in that way. And he's saying, listen, I modeled this for you and you reflected it back 
to me. You, verse 12, did me no wrong. Literally, you did me no harm. You made my life great while I was with you. You blessed me. That's where he's able to confront them in verse 15. Where did that go? Where is your blessedness? Where's your joy in the Christian life? What happened to you? Remember before he was saying they were bewitched, that they've, they've forsaken the gospel. They're still Christians, but they're not living their Christian growth and their Christian life in grace. Something's wrong. They've fallen prey to legalism, to going into rituals and doing things. Jesus plus something else to try to find their groove. And Paul's confronting this, saying, you used to be joyful, and now you're not so much. So Paul, in exasperation in verse 16, builds a pivot point in this unit of thought with the question that's a rhetorical one. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, he's exposing, he wants to expose the false teachers here. He does want to do that. But more importantly, he wants to expose the believers. He wants the believers to examine themselves and see that where Paul once was beloved, like an angel of God, they would have gouged out their own eyes and given them to him. They wanted him to be well. They wanted him to be supported. Now he's their enemy because he's told them something that they don't agree with. He's told them the truth. The gospel is more than actions. The gospel is more than just the, the slogan that I really don't like. You know, live the gospel in, if necessary, use words. I get the point of that. I just don't like it. I watched, uh, I saw a an ad in Christianity Today one time which said that slogan and had a barbecue and it said pulpit, you know. And I get that. I know we're supposed to enjoy people with our backyard barbecues and do all of that, but that's half of it. The other half is actually speaking the truth in love. You have to use the word of God to get to people's hearts. You have to be clear and objective with truth. The gospel was spoken first, then written down so that we could... Speak it so that we could say it. And it's dangerous to say the gospel, is it not? It puts relationships at risk when you speak the truth in love. And Paul was willing to put these relationships, who people he's going to call his beloved children, people he led to Christ, people he loved, people kind of like I just went and saw down in Southern California, people who I've known for 25 years, one of the academic, well, the academic dean of the master's seminary used to be the snivelly-nosed freshman in my dormitory at the master's college way back when. I used to break up fights with him, not me and him, but he and his roommate and do all kinds of stuff. Now he's running things. And, but these people are people I love and, and care about and know me over the years in this sort of dynamic way. And Paul's saying, listen, I am willing to go there and say things that are going to upset you. Things that are going to upset the apple cart and risk the relationship. Relationships are the most influential things that we have. We have things that we love. We have things that we have done. We have experiences that we experience. But people influence us so much more, I think, than we really understand. The people that are closest to you, that know your life, 
that live in community with you, that talk to you weekly, that talk to you perhaps daily, are influencing you in a trend one way or the other. Always. That dynamic is taking place. And Paul wants to head off a negative influence in their lives. He's willing to put himself in front of the bus and throw himself there and say, these cold-hearted relationships are taking you the wrong way. And I want to now confront that and head that off by trying to lead you with love with words. So how do we effectively lead with love? Because hopefully you're thinking in your own life, how am I in this story, in my story? How am I leading in love? Who do I need to step up to the plate and say something to? In love, in the right timing, in the right setting, but nevertheless, speak the truth in love for life change. Who do I need to do that? Well, first of all, we learned last week from verses 12 through 15 that you have to live it out. You have to model love, lead by example. But then two, point two, is risking the relationship. I redid the outline. If you kept the one from last week, I threw it out basically, and here we go. I didn't like it. Anyway, I didn't finish last week, and so I get a, a redo. Point two, risking the relationship. That's the same. Verses 16 through 18. He says this, again, if I become your enemy by telling you the truth, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. They want you to make much of them. Stop there. Verse 17, it begins to show the mixed motivations of these leaders. They have mixed motivations. Paul's become an enemy because these people at these churches in lower Asia Minor, the Turkey, modern day Turkey area, they have people that are in their heads that are saying, don't follow Paul, follow us because, and what they were doing is they were flattering them because they're making much of them. They're pumping them up, literally puffing them up, puffing up their egos. And while they were in this flattery factory with these believers Paul is away from there and unable to defend himself and he's losing respect and they're gaining respect because they're pumping them up and verse 17 shows that there was a reciprocal dynamic in this regard like Paul's reciprocal dynamic in love their reciprocal dynamic was in flattery they make much of you do you see this but for no good purpose they want to shut you shut you out that you may make much of them. What they're doing is saying, listen, we want you to have freedoms. So what you need to do is obey the Old Testament law. Let me unlock the key to the Old Testament in my Jewish rabbiism here. The stuff that, that's the secret knowledge. It's the Bible codes that you were never able to put together. Let me do this work. And some of this is happening now in modern day dynamic, which I'm trying to say sarcastically to you, watch out for this. Whenever someone says the secret to the Old Testament is found in it from a Jewish rabbi, if that Jewish rabbi isn't Jesus Christ, run, okay? He is the key to the Old Testament. He said so himself in Luke 24. Everything was pointing to him. 
So they're trying to say, revert back to Old Testament law. You used to do things in Greco-Roman culture where you'd go to ceremonies and feasts. Do that Old Testament style. That'll take you to the next level. Oh, you've done that. You're so wonderful. And then Paul's saying, listen, what they're doing, instead of broadening the grace of God in your life, they're actually shutting the grace of God out of your life. They're shutting you out of fellowship. They're shutting you out of relationships. They're isolating you. Anytime someone is saying, in a cult-like way, hey, I've got the secret knowledge. Hey, spend time with me, not with those believers over there. And they try to isolate you. Watch out. That's a strategy of Satan. That's a satanic strategy that Paul's exposing here. They're trying to shut you out from true grace through legalism. And they're making much of them. The word make much of here in verse 17 is being zealous over. Cult leaders are often very zealous. They knock on your door. They want to get it done. Why? Because they're trying to fulfill their own need, their own legalism, by getting as many converts as possible, right? The more converts they can stack up, the more comfortable they feel in terms of their own salvation. I'm saved by work, so I'm getting as many converts as I can. That's cult leadership. That's the kind of zeal that these people were putting on these believers. And they were zealously pumping them up, zealously puffing them up so that, here's the motivation, so that they would be codependently, reciprocally looking back to these leaders saying, oh, you're so wonderful. Thank you for relieving me of the guilt of my sin. They're drug pushers. They're drug pushers feeding the affirmation junkie that resides in all of us. Let me affirm you. Let me tell you how great you are so that you need more affirmation. And then they'll suspend some affirmation for a while. Oh, I need some affirmation. Will you please tell me that I'm right with God? Will you please tell me that I'm at peace with God? And no, you're not really. You need to do this and that a little bit more, which is actually feeding my power trip. And so then, so the cycle goes on. They are drug pushers that you have to avoid stroking the proverbial ego It's kind of flattery. It it looks like passionate love, but it's really shrouded hate in disguise. Instead, Paul, for their sakes, is leading with love. He wants them to be blessed again. Remember verse 15? He wants them to focus on Christ. Remember verse 14? He came in the name of Christ, not in the name of himself. They're both reciprocal leaders. You have Paul who's reciprocally leading and loving in relationship. Follow me as I follow Christ. I became like you. I want to know you. But he's doing it with the pure motive. And you can check that motive because ultimately his goal was for them to see Christ. For them to know Jesus. That's leading with love. Where you're passionate and you're pursuant of people and you're personable. But the focus isn't be like me ultimately It's be like Jesus. Whatever about Jesus you see in me, follow that. And disregard everything else. Follow Jesus. Follow his word. Follow his teaching. When people say, no, follow this program. Follow this method. Follow this religion. Follow follow me into this mystical experience. When people do that, they're adding something to the gospel, which is no true gospel at all. It's another gospel. It's not a true gospel. And that happens over and over again. When we confront people and try to unlock them out of their idolatry, by the way, 
It's so dangerous. I really think the reason we don't evangelize is because we intuitively know that it's going to be a rough conversation. I don't think it's just that we don't like talking to people and some people are shyer than other people. I get that. And I, think, I don't think it's just because we don't know what to say. People say, well, memorize this Romans road or this gospel list of verses or this, have this gospel track. That does help. But really the reason we don't want to go for it in gospel evangelism is we know that we're confronting people's idols. When you try to take something from someone that is their heaven on earth, that is their secret way of being at peace, it is their idol in their pocket. When you try to take that from them and say, you really need to exchange that for Christ alone for salvation, that's a dangerous conversation. It's like taking someone who's a drug addict and taking their drugs away from them. They're going to go through detox often. And it's going to put the relationship on the line if you do it, even if it's a brand new relationship. But I think this, and I'll give you some encouragement. By knowing what you're facing and facing your fears and saying, you know what? I'm going to actually do that. I'm going to tell them that they need to know Jesus and Christ alone for salvation. I'm going to go there. And you consider the cost of that conversation. By doing that often, I find that we become bolder in our evangelism. We're willing to go there because you know that it's going to be awkward. You don't just, you're not surprised by it. You go there and the Lord gives grace and all that and we're called to do it. Well, these unwitting spin doctors, they were zealous for their own fault system, trapped in their own vicious cycle of spin, spins and they were tickling ears. Ultimately, the church wants its ears tickled, Second Timothy 4, 3, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, they don't want to hear the truth, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Let's look at the opposite motivation. Verse, the next verse, verse 18, takes us into Paul's pure motivations in loving leadership. Look at verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Let's stop there. Let's imagine that's on a bumper sticker, right? You know, that, that's not really the Christian t-shirt slogan that you'd probably want to wear around. Hey, it's always good to be made much of. Hey, it's in the Bible. That's, that's my life verse. I love to be made much of. Could you imagine that? I just thought that was funny. But the way it reads. But really, when you understand this, it actually makes a lot more sense when you think about it. It's always good to be made much of or for someone to affirm you zealously for a good purpose when you're doing right. When you are righteous, when you're walking in true Christian spiritual righteousness, when you are glorifying the Lord, it is always good for spiritual leaders, mentors, friends, your spouse, your children. I don't want to leave anybody out. It's always good to affirm each other in that. That's all that Paul is saying. It's good. People get hung up on affirmation and they say, well, it's awkward to affirm. It's awkward to receive the affirmation. And so I'm not going to do it. People will rationalize away and often in the name of false humility, and I want to just say it, pride, they won't go there and say, I've seen something in your life that you're doing well. I'm seeing progress in God's work of grace in your life. I love it and I want to celebrate it with you, for you. The coffee's on me. I want to tell you that God is working in your life. I love you. I think you're a fantastic person. People are afraid to do that. 
People rationalize and say, well, that person's going to get lazy if I do that. You know, that person's going to just stop uh, serving Christ. They're going to, you know, jump off the track or whatever. I I think it's just wrong. They're going to get, here's one, they're going to get puffed up in pride. I'm going to send them spiraling out because I'm pumping them um, up in a way that's going to play in their ego. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when you see something good in a person's life, to tell them, to celebrate it. As parents or grandparents, please affirm your children. You are your child's number one person in their life. You're the number one protector, defender, but you're the number one specialist of your child's life. You know the child's strengths. You know the child's weaknesses. You know what's good about the child. You know where the child is failing. And so you can very precisely affirm a child or a grandchild in a way that no one else can. And it is your duty and your job to do so. When you see God working in that child's life, no matter how much they've done wrong, when there's something right, go for it. Lock onto that and affirm them. Otherwise, it warps children not to hear affirmation. This temptation of not wanting to affirm also works in reverse. Pride, there's pride in not receiving compliments. When people say, well, I'm going to affirm you, and you start going, well, no, no. Don't talk about me. All glory to God. I won't talk about me. I didn't do it. It was all God. Jesus is awesome. I'm not awesome. No, that is also, I believe, a form of pride and false humility. Uh, We want to give glory to God, but it's important to be humble enough to receive affirmation, to receive credit. To, to earn a degree, to, to earn a certification. These things shouldn't just be hidden away in the name of some kind of humility. No, it's, it's progress in your life. It can become pride, but it doesn't have to. I think a lot of times people are afraid to receive affirmation because it raises the bar of what's expected in their life now. <laughs> it's like, you know, you do this really well. No, no, I don't do that well. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be accountable to do that more. Or keep doing it at this level, right? And listen, the church, Anchorage Grace Church, needs your talent. So don't hide your talent. Don't shirk your responsibility where God puts pressure on your heart and on your life, whether you're an analyst, whether you're a bean counter, whether you're a behind-the-scenes servant, whether you're a doer, whether you're a writer, whether you're a counselor, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a singer, whether you're an instrumentalist, whether you're a children's caregiver. I mean, it goes on and on and on. If God has given you that gift and you in the name of prideful, false humility are saying, no, 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 I'm not, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm just a, I'm just a behind the scenes. I show up and leave. That could be you being out of God's will. So we need to be able to take a compliment. See, if you send me down to California, I can really squeeze the turnip. There is so much that was laid on my heart with this, but we have to be, we have to be careful. God's word models healthy affirmation. The proverb says this, let another praise you. It doesn't say don't let another praise you ever. It's a, the point is of Proverbs 27 too, don't praise yourself, but let another praise you. Let's go to the ultimate father-son relationship, Matthew three seventeen, And behold, a voice from heaven said, from God the Father, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased with my son. It's okay to say that publicly. God the Father did. First Timothy four twelve. 
Paul said, let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy. Don't let people look down on you, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and in purity. Paul was telling Timothy, expose, example the good things in your life for others to see. Alexander Strzok, he wrote the book where I got my title to these couple of sermons, Leading with Love, and he said, God is verbal. He doesn't leave us guessing. Consequently, our leadership should follow God's example. He says, leaders who speak only when there is something negative to say or disapprove are not effective. People need to hear positive words of appreciation and love. Such words build healthy Christian community. Just as people need oxygen in order to breathe, they need a fresh breath of affirmation and acknowledgement of their achievements to nurture their soul. And I've said it already, healthiest children, the healthiest children are those whom are affirmed. It's just building people up. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. We're supposed to build up, not tear down. The word build up is edify and think of an edifice. We're putting building blocks in people's lives Verse 18 brings the uh, rounding out of how this is done. It says, Paul says, and not only when I am present with you. He's saying, this is not just me as the affirmer in your life. Paul's not looking to create sycophants or followers that are following out of a weird kind of codependency. He doesn't want that. He's saying whether I'm there or not, there should be affirmation and a flood of affirmation that's raining down in Christian community as you get together all of the time. This should be the culture of the church. Paul's motivation was to lead people to Christ and to be like Christ. So how do you discern the difference between mixed motivations and true motivations? Well, let's keep exploring the text. Verses 19 and 20. Not only did Paul model leading with love by example, not only did he confront the church and churches risking the relationship as a measure of leadership and love, but thirdly, he holds the line with children of God through perseverance. And this is how we should do it with people in the body of Christ. We have to, we have to lead by example, we have to say the hard thing, and we have to hold the ever-loving line. We have to. You can't just say, okay, I did it, now I'm going to take my foot off of the accelerator. There's a time and a place to give some release And to give some grace and give some room for people to breathe. But you have to be willing to hold the accelerator down enough to where it's going to be awkward for a while. Where you took a stand, you're going to to say, this is my position. I love you. I'll relate to you. But you need to hear what I'm saying. And the pressure needs to stay on for a while. That's what Paul is doing here in these last two verses. He says, my little children, for whom I am again... In the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's a lot of passion here. This is showing love's depth, the depth of love that Paul is giving. He's addressing them as little children. Remember, he's addressed these Christians as those who are, who are duped, who are bewitched. He's astonished by them. He's saying that they could be almost accursed. They're, they're following a false gospel. He's concerned for them. He doesn't really know all of where they are spiritually. 
And now he's bringing things all the way back to a relational dimension. This is the release valve in the pressure that Paul is applying. He's saying, I love you. I led you to Christ. And you're technion, little children. It's a diminutive term, term of endearment, saying you're like little children to me. I'm like your spiritual father, and I love you. He's took, taken a strong tone, but he's reestablishing this parent-to-child relationship. Why? Because he knows they're Christians, but he, and he knows they're in Christ, and he knows that Christ is in them, but Christ is not yet fully formed in them. That's the key distinction in this text. Here's where we have to understand that it's not okay just to lead people to Christ. We want to lead people where Christ is formed fully in their lives. Leading them to Christ, but also nurturing Christ in them to its completion. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching with all wisdom that, he may, that we may present every man complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. Verse 29. To this end, he said, I labor and I strike. I toil and struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul was incensed about this job. He was, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit as he agonized in his own strength for Christ to be fully formed in people's lives. The anguish of childbirth can't be ignored here. He's saying until Christ is fully shaped, the word morphe uh, is here, it's fully formed or fully shaped in you. Until that happens, I'm in anguish. John Stott said, Paul is not satisfied that Christ dwells in them. He longs to see Christ formed in them, to see them transformed into the image of Christ. False leaders, they wanted outward conformity. We want you to conform externally. I mean, we're passionate too. Do, these, do this or that. Join this or that. Paul's saying, no, my passion is for Christ to be formed in you. I wasn't looking for codependency. He's looking for Christ. Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word metamorphosis is there. Go into the chrysalis and come out as the butterfly transformed. How passionate was Paul? He was in the travail of childbirth. He had watched women, I'm sure, be in this condition, having labor pains, screaming over it, wanting desperately for this to take place. How do we get there? Well, I think we have to target in on what Paul is doing here. He's engaging the dilemma. A lot of times we'll just sort of say, well, you know, I know they're saved. And so I'm not going to look the other way that because they're being legalistic and I'm just going to ignore that. A lot of people who are legalistic are down. They're depressed. They're shackled. They're under the pile. They're worriers. They're, they're caught on the performance treadmill of life. They're despondent and depressed, feeling like they can never measure up. Paul had a passion to release these people as if he's their parent. Tim Keller put it this way in his commentary on Galatians. He said, this is why Paul used the image of labor. He's like a mother laboring in the pains of childbirth over his disciples. A mother in labor desperately wants her child to get out and be independently alive. Be alive. A child grows inside a mother. The mother must suffer in order to give life to the child. But that does not mean she wants the child to stay in the womb. You want 
children in Christ to take more steps and to grow. How passionate was Paul to see this happen, not just in the Galatians' lives. He was passionate, and you see this passion spill out all over the New Testament. I'll just take you on a quick little roller coaster ride, a few verses. Just listen, buckle up. Romans 16, I rejoice over you. Philippians 1 7, I hold you in my heart. Philippians 1 8, I yearn for you with all affection of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2 8, being affectionately desirous of you. My love be with you. All in Christ, 1 Corinthians 16. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish with many tears to let you know of the abundant love I have for you, 2 Corinthians 2. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide, 2 Corinthians 6. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together, 2 Corinthians 7. You're in our hearts to die because, because I do not love you. No, God knows I do, 2 Corinthians 11. I seek not what is yours, but you, 2 Corinthians 12. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you the more, am I to be loved the less, 2 Corinthians 12. And may the Lord make you increase in love for one another as we do for you, 1 Thessalonians 3. And then Philemon 12, I am sending him back to you, Onesimus. I am sending my very heart. He loved these believers. He loved all of the believers he had contact with. The goal of love was to see Christ formed in them. I think there's a temptation to indifference. There's a temptation in reform circles to say, well, God's sovereign. I'm not going to worry about these people. God's in control. You can quote verses. He begin a good work and you'll be faithful to complete it till the day of the Lord Jesus. So I'm just going to check out. It's not okay. You rest in the sovereignty of God. You pillow your head on the sovereignty of God. You trust that God is working, that God is going to do the work. But we passionately pursue people. And you say the Christian life is boring. Well, it's not if you do this. It's not if you engage people on this level. It's not if you are willing to touch the sacred nerve of the idolatry that you know, that nobody else knows, that's in that person's life. Have a conversation about that and things will get exciting for you all of a sudden. You may not like it, but that's... The Christian life. And it's, it's exciting because what happens is when people let something go and you see some fruit out of that and you see people grow, it becomes very enjoyable. Half-heartedness and excuses aren't enough. Calvin put it this way, if ministers wish to do any good, let them labor to form Christ. Not to form themselves and their hearers, but Christ. John Stott, the Christian minister, should resemble Paul, not the Judaizers. He should be preoccupied with people's spiritual progress and care nothing about his own prestige. He should not use them out of his own pleasure, but be willing on their behalf to endure pain. This is not promoting self. It's promoting Christ. It's pursuant of hearts for Christ. You want people to listen to the message of Christ. You want people not to love me as the pastor You want people to love the message that I might preach as long as it's preaching Christ. That's how it is. That's the Christian life. I went to a church. I got to visit a church uh, that my daughter's um, attending in Santa Clarita. And I talked to an elder afterwards. I was in the after time trying to meet the pastor. And the pastor came in and, you know, I said, yeah, we know people in common. I used to work with people that were your associate pastors when you were. And he was like, oh, great, great, good, 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 good. And he was gone, you know, and... I was like, wow. And the, and the elder said, yeah, well, he's kind of like that. He's lively in the pulpit, but not, you know, so interactive uh, with people. And I went, 
oh, there's another person like me. That's kind of cool. I, you know, and, you know, people are gifted in different ways. But I think that there is some theology, there is some teaching here to say that we can be Christ to people, we can give Christ to people, we can have the conversations we need to have with people without creating codependency. And that's loving leadership. Well, love is also committed. Look at verse 20. There's a commitment here. It says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. What's happening here? Paul's being very transparent. He's saying, hey, peer into my heart as an apostle. Look inside. I wish that I could take my foot off the accelerator. I do. I wish I could do it. He can't see how they're reacting. He doesn't yet know how they're responding to the hard medicine that Paul is giving. He doesn't know if they're willing to release allegiances to leaders that are there with them to let go of them to come back to the gospel. He doesn't know where they are, so he can't change his tone yet. He wishes he could, but he can't. He's confessing sadness. This is an admission, imagining how his words are hurting them, for him to say that, for them to read what he's written. Second Corinthians 7, he had given the same kind of admission. It was after he found out that the Corinthians had repented, though, but the prior letter, which is called the severe letter, is what he was grieved over in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. He said, I made you grieve with my letter. I do not regret it. Then he says, though I did regret it. And that's where we live. He says, for I see that it grieved you, though only for a while. We live in this teetering fulcrum of saying, I have to say the hard thing. And I know I'm hurting that person's feelings. I know I'm risking the relationship, but I want Christ to be formed in them. So I'm willing to say it. And it's tough. And he wishes he didn't have to say it the way he was saying it. He said, I'm perplexed. I'm at a loss over this because I don't know your spiritual condition yet. Spurgeon said all this anxiety arose from him saying that, uh, the ritualism, the legalism he was confronting, the natural tendency of man toward ceremony, toward legal righteousness, something aesthetic, something that delights the sensuous nature, something that a person can see and hear, something to mix up the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we're, we're confronting. It's what we're called to talk about with people. And it's hard to do, but it's so worthwhile because when you see people who are steered in one direction in one friend circle, steer into another direction and get into a right Christian community where the gospel is built up in their lives, there is nothing greater than that. It's the cake and ice cream of life. Well, love's patience is marked out here by his expression of being perplexed. He wants a breakthrough. He wants there to be release. He wants the argument to be over. And he's looking for that, but he won't change his tone. And his tone is going to keep going. Verse 21 is where he goes back into theological argumentation. The gloves are still off. This is a paragraph, an interlude of, of, of love and sentiment and and heart and transparency over this flock. And now he's going to go back into the heavy artillery beginning in verse 21. It takes patience, doesn't it? It takes patience 
to see Christ formed in people. It isn't days typically or months. It's often years. It's often decades. But a formula of affirmation, even where you are affirming and yet holding the line over a long period of time where things are still cloudy and unresolved, often bears fruit. Fruit that parents or pastors or just Christian to Christian dynamic, often you won't even see the fruit necessarily in this life, but it happens. The issue is this. I want to call you to be on a mission to help people be set free. Free from codependency, free from idolatry, free from false humility, free from man worship or woman worship. We need to worship Christ and call people to worship Christ until Christ is formed fully in them.